This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with uh, our guest today, Jason Hoxima, biology professor at the University of Mississippi, president of the Delta Windbird Organization. Libby Hartfield is out on the West Coast visiting relatives. She won't be able to call in today. And we think that Dr. Major might be busy at the clinic because we've not heard from him yet this morning as well. Uh, If he comes on the line later, we'll let you have your pet questions. But in the meantime, we will share the hour with our guest. If you want to join our conversation, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. So good morning, Jason, and thanks for joining us. If you would, by starting off, tell us a little about your background and how you became involved with the Delta Windbird organization. Sure. Good morning. Um, well, my background, when I was... Young, I actually thought I was going to be a bird biologist growing up. Uh, It was really what got me into biology in the first place was seeing really interesting birds out the back window of my parents' house uh, at at feeders and my grandparents as well. And I went into college thinking I was going to be an ornithologist, a, a, a person who studies birds. And I ended up kind of going down a different path and studying trees and fungi and mushrooms in the soil for my research career, but I've always maintained birding and, as a hobby. Uh, and since coming to Mississippi back in 2007, uh, I've gotten more and more involved in bird conservation as well, because bird populations of many types are declining precipitously. Uh, and a lot of us are now trying to work together to uh, try to solve that problem and find solutions. Um, so. Delta Windbirds was is an organization that was started by a group of birders from northern Mississippi uh, who uh, just love the birds of our region and had been enjoying uh, finding them all over the place. But especially uh, among us, we have a fondness for this group of birds called the shorebirds, and I can explain more what those are in a minute. But um, While running around together looking for these birds, especially out in the Delta, we came across some places on farms, catfish farms, crop farms, where farmers were making habitat for these birds on their working lands. And we learned about a program uh, called the Migratory Bird Habitat Initiative, which was actually after the Gulf oil spill, the uh, the, uh, Coast Guard was skimming oil off the Gulf and selling it. Uh, and using the money for bird conservation. And uh, so this was administered by the NRCS, uh, who was making, working with farmers to create bird habitat to kind of help to make up for some of the lost habitat and damaged habitat on the coast. But we learned that this program was going to be running out in 2013. And it was working really well, as far as we could tell, and uh, from the reports we had seen. So we started Delta Windbirds as a way to kind of pick up the slack when that program was set to run out. And the idea was to raise funds uh, to then work with private landowners to create really good high-quality habitat for migratory birds coming through our region here. So we've been doing that since uh, 2013, the fall of fall of 13. Uh, so with these birds, can we use the term windbird and shorebird interchangeably? Yeah, you can. 
shorebird is probably the more common term, uh, and I can clarify a little bit what that means. Uh, in a in a specific sense, what we when we say shorebird, we're referring to a specific group of birds, including the sandpipers and plovers and killdeer or killdee, uh, and snipe are included in this group and woodcocks. Um, not things, uh, not every bird that is uh, found in coastal areas. In fact, these birds are they are found on the coast on beaches, but they are also found inland in on muddy mudflat areas. Uh, along the edges of lakes and uh, other wetlands. Uh, and you probably have most commonly seen them if you're sitting on the beach or walking on the beach and you see these, uh, these birds called sanderlings that are running uh, out as the waves recede and they run out into that gravelly area by the, by the, on the beach near the, the water and poke their little beaks into the soil to grab. What they're grabbing is little worms and other invertebrate animals and eating them. That's really typical behavior of a shorebird, uh, is to, to have a little bit of a, a longer, narrow bill that they use to probe wet uh, soil or sand and pull out worms and other invertebrates, little clams and uh, uh, things like that. And so they do do this on the shore of the ocean, but they also do it on the shores of lakes and rivers and other types of wetlands. Um, and there are, there are probably, um, you know, really commonly more than 20 species of these, these birds that migrate through our region. Um, windbird is a term of endearment for these, this group of birds that was coined by the, the naturalist Peter Matheson, who wrote a book about them uh, uh, back in the 20th century. And uh, there's some poetic language in that book about these birds being birds of the wind uh, because they, their migration is really impressive. And uh, they, they nest in the Arctic and a lot of them winter on all the way from the Gulf of Mexico down to the southern tip of South America. And they have to fly thousands of miles at a time to in both the spring and the fall to make this migration. And so, you know, Matheson was really convincing in his language about how special these birds are. And he used that term wind bird. So some of it's a little bit of an inside uh, thing among birders to call them wind birds, but it's it's kind of a term of endearment, and we like that term, so we use it sometimes. You, you mentioned how the the little birds run out in the surf, and I know I've mentioned a couple of times on the show. My brother lives down in uh, Pensacola. Love to go to the beach to visit, but I just I, it's amazing. I can just watch those birds go ahead for you know for hours on end. They're just to me interesting little birds, and it's amazing how quick they are. And and as you say, they're 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 out there poking around looking for a meal. Absolutely, and. The interesting thing is that there are dozens of species of these birds, and they all actually have a different way of feeding. It, in general, that's what they're doing. But if you look at different species, uh, some of them are larger with a big, long, curved bill. Sometimes it's curved up. Sometimes it's curved down. Sometimes it's a straight, stout bill. Uh, sometimes it's short and, and, and more pointed. And that... That, those are adaptations for these different species of birds to find and extract different kinds of prey from these same habitats. So one species will be going after clams that are, dig, uh, that are deeper down in the mud. Some are going after crabs. Some are going after worms that are a little bit more shallow. And their bills, the shape of their bill or their beak, can tell you something about uh, those differences in the food that they're going after. And, and if you just sit and watch these birds, you can see their different strategies and their different styles for, uh, for foraging for those kinds of food. So that's something to watch for on the beach next time everyone is down there. 
is watch for different species of these and see if you can see their different feeding strategies. Um, a great place in Mississippi to do this is on the beach in Harrison County. Um, some of you may know Jones Park. Uh, it's right at Gulfport Harbor, just to the east. And that little corner of beach there, just east of, of uh, the harbor at Jones Park, is a great spot to see uh, actually close to a dozen different species of these birds um, in their foraging niches. And, and if you go there at low tide, that when there's a lot of exposed sand and mud, uh, you can really have a great time watching these birds. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today we're visiting with Jason Hoxima. He is a biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbird Organization. So we're talking about these birds, shorebirds or windbirds. Both uh, are acceptable terms. Uh, we'll have more with Jason throughout the hour. Right now we've got a caller on the line. Our friend Sue from Beaumont has called in. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, y'all. How you doing? Good. I'd like to ask a question of your guest. There used to be a sanctuary down there off I-10 for whooping cranes. I know they're not, they might, they might not be called wind birds, but I haven't heard anything about them for years. Are they still considered near extinction or do they still uh, have that sanctuary for the uh, whooping cranes? Oh, well, I think that what you're thinking of is probably the sandhill cranes that we have down there. Um, whooping cranes are still endangered, although they are recovering. Uh, due to reintroduction efforts where uh, f federal biologists have been raising them from chicks and reintroducing them into different populations, establishing these populations. Some of those populations are non-migratory. Some of them migrate uh, up to Canada or uh, the Midwest and back. Uh, but in Mississippi, uh, what we have is a sandhill crane. Uh, sandhill crane is another species closely related to the whooping crane. Um, and actually, there are two types of sandhill cranes that we have in Mississippi. One of them is the migratory version that spends the winter in part of the Mississippi Delta. And we actually lead a field trip every winter in December or January uh, where you can see those sandhill cranes, in, especially in Panola County and areas further north. But down closer to the coast of Mississippi, we have the uh, sandhill crane that is the, the Mississippi sandhill crane. It is a, an endemic, uh, non-migratory population of sandhill cranes, and you can see them in a few different places. There is a, the, the sandhill crane, uh, Mississippi sandhill crane national wildlife refuge, uh, and that's in Jackson County, and it's pretty close to the coast there. There's a visitor center, and you can go there and, and get more information about where to see those birds. And if you go there, uh, you'll see that there's, it's a big place with lots of habitat and they can give you in directions to places around that area where you can drive and actually have a pretty good chance of seeing them. Those birds, the sandhill cranes, um, are beautiful birds. They are, they are not classified as shorebirds. I would call them more of a wading bird, uh, but they're really fun to watch and amazing birds. And they spread out across the landscape in Jackson County and surrounding areas uh, during the day for feeding, and they're often found in agricultural fields. Um, and so there are some farms in that area where you can you can just stay on the road in your car and, and actually see them uh, feeding out in the agricultural fields there. So the folks at the Sandhill Crane Refuge can give you more uh, information about that. The, these Sandhill Cranes also use the really nice wetland habitat at the um, uh, Seaman Road Sewage Lagoons in Jackson County, which is a really nice place that, that uses wetlands 
to treat uh, the, the sewage in that area. And those wetlands are really valuable bird habitat, actually. And the sandhill cranes are among the many species of birds that use that really nice wetland habitat there. All right, Sue, thanks for your call. Always good to hear from you. Uh, so, uh, Jason, you, mo- you mentioned that uh, you work with farmers in the Delta trying to create temporary habitats. So I imagine you're excited about an e- a recent EPA grant. Uh, so tell us what uh, Delta Windbirds uh, will do with that uh, grant money. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I'm also a professor at the University of Mississippi, as you mentioned earlier. And uh, we've been partnering with Delta Windbirds and also with the USDA Uh, research laboratory here in Oxford and with scientists at Mississippi State University uh, in a project where we've been working with crop farmers uh, to help them create habitat on their crop fields after the harvest. So we've been focusing on farmers that have uh, a source of surface water, especially a tailwater recovery system. It's a really cool infrastructure that can be found on hundreds of farms now in the Delta region where they have a series of ditches and reservoirs that catch the, the water that runs off their fields uh, and recycle it, allows them to recycle it so that they can reuse it for irrigation. But they often have extra water left over at the end of the crop season, after, after they've harvested their corn or their soybeans in September or October. And we've been working with those uh, farmers to take some of that excess water and pump it back out onto their crop field Uh, to create a shallow flood where there's shallow water and mudflats, just like what these migratory shorebirds need during their migration. Uh, When when they're migrating, they need to be able to stop and find habitats like this to feed intensively for a week or more to fatten up for the next leg of their journey. And it turns out that you can make really high-quality habitat by just putting this recycled surface water back out onto the crop fields during the fall. And when you do that, it turns it into a temporary wetland uh, where um, populations of worms and other invertebrate animals start thriving on this crop field. And then the birds can come in and feast on these worms uh, before they move on in their migration. Um, What we've been doing with uh, the last couple of years with the USDA lab, uh, our partners there have been studying the other benefits of this practice. It not only benefits the birds, but it turns out that according to our preliminary data, when you take this water and pump it back out onto these fields, um, there are all kinds of other benefits as well for the soil uh, and for reducing downstream uh, pollution. So, for example, one thing is that just by trapping this water on the field, when it rains, you don't get soil eroding off of these fields. Uh, Instead, that soil is kept on the field, so it's a soil conservation measure. Secondly, it promotes beneficial bacterial activity where excess nitrogen in that water is pumped up into the air instead of running off downstream and causing harmful algal blooms uh, and oxygen depletion and contributing to the the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And moreover, uh, surprisingly but happily, we've seen some benefits for subsequent crop yields on those flooded fields. So far, we've done this on cornfields, and then the farmers have grown soybeans in the next year, and we've seen a bit of a higher yield of soybeans on those flooded fields uh, compared to the fields that weren't flooded the year before. So something beneficial is going on likely in the soil, and we're working with this EPA grant now. We're we're working with four different farmers to try to test what's going on. Um, We're testing 
the benefits potentially of flooding only in the fall versus only in the winter. Traditionally, uh, a lot of farmers have flooded in the winter to attract waterfowl for, for duck hunting. But we're testing what happens if you flood in the fall, which is better for the shorebirds, which is really what helps the shorebirds that are migrating during the fall migration, versus whether you flood all fall and all winter, or if you just put riser boards in and trap rainfall, is, are the, do you get the same benefits? And then we're also testing, does it matter if it's after corn versus soybeans? And of course, we're measuring the benefits for the birds. We're quantifying the numbers of these worms in the soil uh, that the birds are eating, and also the birds themselves and how abundant they are and how and whether they're attracted to these different kinds of flooding regimes. So that's a three-year project, um, and we're trying to spread the word about the potential benefits of these practices. Uh, and we're always looking for uh, farmers who are interested in uh, partnering with us on these kinds of projects. That, to me, sounds like the very definition of a win-win situation, where it's it's good for the birds and it's good for the farmers as well. So that's really encouraging, and hopefully you'll get a lot of good data out of that uh, study that you're doing with the EPA. we got a couple of callers on the line, so let's return to the phone lines. Beginning in Biloxi, Frida has called in. Good morning, Frida. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Hi, good morning. I was curious about if the um, gentleman can tell me, I have some birds that nest in my porch light, my front porch light. This is maybe the sixth year that they've done this. They're just a little bitty brown bird. They have maybe three to six babies every single year. And um, my porch light, it's just a little, it's like a square box. I live in Picayune, and it was like a glass clear square box, but one of the edges was broken, I guess, so they never replaced it. So, you know, I would always change my light bulb to, you know, whatever season, green for the military, orange for Halloween, red, Christmas, whatever. But one year it was really, you know, full of straw and a mess, so I cleaned it all out. And then the next year when it came to spring cleaning, I realized it was back full of straw and stuff. So I left it and started looking, and sure enough, these birds came and had babies and stayed there from like this time of the year till I don't know for two or three months they stay there and you know they have a quite a few little babies in there and so now I don't clean out my porch light and they come every single year and I was just wondering if he could tell me what kind they were oh well yeah it's almost certainly house finches that you have uh, house finch is uh, a small brown bird, but it also, the males have a little bit of red on their head and the upper breast. And so look for that, see if you can see that. And if yes. if you can see that the males have that red on them, it, then it would be house finches. And they really commonly do this. Um, they used to nest in the, the wreath on the front door of our house up in, when I lived in Michigan as a kid. And um, it's it, they also nest in potted plants that are hanging from the front porches that's that's what they do and uh, they're very very abundant birds and so um, uh, they seem to be really thriving with human habitation all right uh, for How do they know um, is, is it the same ones that come back every year or these are just different ones that keep finding oh. this secure yeah, little that's, place that's a good question it's hard to know uh, these birds don't live super long. House finches probably only live, um, you know, a few years on average. But it, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it was their offspring who are coming back in subsequent years. 
All right, Frida, we appreciate your call this morning. It's time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, Jason Hoeksema, about the work of the Delta Windbirds organization. And uh, we might uh, tell you about some opportunities that you could lend a helping hand. So stay tuned. If you've had a brush with a shorebird or another brush with nature, we'd always like to hear those. You can call with questions and comments this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email animals at mpbonline.org. We've got Mike on from Hernando on the line. We'll get to his call and much more after this break. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here. Uh, our normal crew, uh, Libby Hartfield, is uh, out uh, visiting relatives out west. Uh, she usually calls in but was having a little bit of cell trouble this morning, so we'll look forward to visiting with Libby again next Thursday. Dr. Major out this week as well. However, we got an interesting guest that we've been visiting with throughout the hour, and that is Jason Hoeksema, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbirds. You can still join the conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven. MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. I promised Mike from Hernando we would get to his call, so let's invite him on the line. Go ahead, Mike. You're on the air with us. Hey, you guys. Uh, I grew up out west and did a lot of photography of the birds around the Great Salt Lake. However, uh, I now live here, and every winter I venture out into Tunica County for the snow geese that come down the flyway from Canada, and there are millions of them. But I was wondering if anything else comes down in that grouping, and I never see anything but the snow geese, but I'd love to see cranes or anything else. Is there an, a specific area around here where I can go to find something a little different to photograph? Yeah, good question. Um, well, first of all, I'll just highlight something that is interesting about those geese. In fact, those geese are typically a mixed flock of two different species. So snow geese are the more abundant, but there's a smaller one always mixed in with them called the Ross's goose. Uh, and you can spot them sometimes in a, if there's a small flock flying overhead, you can watch for the birds that are just about, you know, two thirds the size of the snow geese. And those are Ross's goose. And they're, and they're, uh, they're in there as well. Color? Uh, they're the color? same. They're actually, uh, you know how snow geese have that two have two different color phases. There's a white form yeah. and what they call the blue morph, which is a darker form. Ross's geese generally don't have that darker form. It can be found. It's oh. very very rare. So they're typically only white, but they're 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 they look the same, but they're just uh, about two thirds the size with a a smaller bill and a couple of smaller details that are different on the face and the bill. Um, but watch for those. Um, there are also greater white-fronted geese, which are really, I think, a, a beautiful goose species with a bright orange feet and legs and a barred uh, breast and belly, which gives them the nickname uh, speckle bellies. So if you talk to, to mm -hmm. duck and goose hunters, they'll call them speckle bellies. I really like seeing flocks of those. Um, uh, but there are a lot of other cool things you can see out there. Um, that tunica area is really good in general, especially uh, in... Uh, an area called Buck Island Road. Uh, if you follow right. around that road, 
that, that's probably an area you know. Um, but if you go I further do. south and look for Fish Fish Lake Road, that Fish Lake mm -hmm. Road has some catfish ponds that can be seen from the road, and there's lots of waterfowl there. There also tend mm -hmm. to be a lot of red-tailed hawks there. And one thing you can watch out for in the winter in the Delta is we have actually several unique subspecies of red-tailed hawks that visit us only in the winter. So you can find mm -hmm. varieties that are chocolate brown or black with a white band across the chest or almost mm -hmm. completely snow white, uh, really interesting subspecies of red-tailed hawks. Mm. Um, those, tell, me, tell me this, too. Are there, what's the chance of seeing any crane uh, up yeah, this far, well, up the Delta? Cranes are, are few and far between, but there are some places you can see them. Uh, so, for example, the Sandhill Crane, the best place to see them is in Panola County, uh, kind of northwest right. of Batesville. If you uh, drive along this area that is um, it's Ballantyne Road and uh, a couple of the other mm -hmm. roads there uh, that are in that area, but especially, especially Ballantyne Road at the east end of it, um, you, you can often uh, find Sandhill Cranes. Uh, they move around during the day in different places, but if you drive around that area, that's your best chance. Um, I'll and also they, say and that they would be they would they would be seasonal or just in the yeah. winter, or are they here all the time? Oh, they're only there in the winter. Yeah, those are that's okay. a population that nests up in the Midwest somewhere or Canada, and then they come down just for the winter. They show up usually in late November, and they're there, you know, through through January and February. Uh, they might be gone, okay. they're probably gone by now, um, but they're pretty reliable yeah. in the middle of the winter. And uh, Delta Windbirds, we always lead a field trip that time of year, um, partly to look for those birds. Um, so, you know, keep oh. an eye out for that. You can go to our website and um, we'll, we try to bring people right to where those birds are being found. And, and um, But if you also, you can subscribe to the Miss Bird listserv. There's an email listserv called Miss Bird, M-I-S-S-B-I-R-D. And you can subscribe to that. And several of us uh, uh, go out and look for these birds and re will report on there where they can be found at any particular time. So you can watch that also. Is that MissBird.com? Um, well, MissBird.org is the website for the Mississippi Ornithological Society, which I also recommend uh, checking out. Okay. In fact, MissBird.org, there you can find information about the spring meeting that's coming up for the Mississippi Ornithological Society, which sounds fancy, but it's really just a, a collection of birders from across the state who get together to, for photography and, and birding opportunities. Oh. And we're going to be meeting down on the coast, in the Gulf Coast, at the end of April. So if anyone is interested in just okay. joining in on some field trips, we're going to have a really interesting banquet and talk in the evening at a restaurant in Biloxi. Um, please consider signing up for uh, that meeting at the end of April. That's MissBird.org. I would, like to, I would, I'd like to do that because I got, a, I've got thousands of photos I'd like to put online for you guys that I've taken all over the Northern Delta. Okay, well, we should connect for sure. Um, and MissBird though is also an email list that people can sign up for, so you can find information about that if you just Google MissBird uh, listserv. All right, Mike, great call. Thanks for calling in this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to stay on the phone lines here for a bit. Next, uh, Bruce has called in uh, while he's on the road. Good morning, Bruce. What do you have for us? Um, I, you know, I was trying to listen to something um, suitable on the radio. I don't listen to the radio, but I can't believe 
that I am hearing the word Sandhill Crane, um, I mentor a homeschool family that is, they are in route right now to Kearney, Nebraska, the Platte River, where this is where the Sandhill Cranes are right now. They say that there's maybe up to a million of them, and they, they stop there for one month, and they feed in this, like, low water area before flying to Siberia and um, Canada and, I think, Alaska. Um, so it's amazing. Um, I, I think they are gone from Mississippi um, and also from Texas, but um, I surrendered that trip. But um, I have a couple general questions. Um, I've really been studying the, 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 the flying formations of, like, um, like flocks of birds and how they, they swoop together close and then they spread out. And I've, I've filmed some of that, but I'm curious, what, um, why is there such a decrease in the population of birds? And are there any other water water birds that that fly in those flocks and create those beautiful formations in the sky? Ah, well, it's a really good question as to uh, why birds make different kinds of formations when they're flying. Um, one thing that I'm sure you've noticed is that, and, and a lot of people have, is that certain waterfowl. Uh, geese and ducks especially will form a, a V when they're flying together. Cranes will do this also. And um, that's pretty well known that that's an aerodynamic benefit. They're drafting on each other and it makes the group more efficient altogether. But these other kinds of formations um, where birds are swooping around in tight flocks and, and moving almost like as one, it's a really interesting mystery. Uh, and how they do it and why they do it is really not very well known. It is one of the things we love about shorebirds. Shorebirds will do this uh, during migration, and it's a really enjoyable and fascinating thing to watch. Other birds will do it as well, blackbirds and starlings. Um, you'll see this behavior in, in fish, you know, uh, schools of fish as well underwater. Um, it's a really interesting phenomenon that's a current subject of research. I would um, recommend an article about this that was just published okay. in Harper's, Ma Harper's Magazine uh, by my friend and colleague here at the university, Vanessa Gregory, which actually is inspired by fireflies and the synchrony of fireflies that we have in northern Mississippi and other parts of this region. But that article goes into this general phenomenon of flocking and how animals are able to coordinate with each other when they're, they're moving in synchrony like that uh, in the air or in other uh, other habitats. Is there That's a term for that? Is it, I think I read part of that article. Is there a, 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 a term for that? Is it murmurations? Is it? Yeah, you, that's, you, that, yeah, that's a word that's used often for the, the birds doing that. Um, murmuration. There's a, some great videos. If you Google murmuration and starlings, there's a, a classic video that was filmed by a couple of women on the West Coast um, of and that really started this phenomenon of people paying attention to murmuration. But it, it, that's the word in birds, and you, you see other terms used for, for other kinds of animals doing this kind of thing. All right, Bruce, thanks for calling in this morning. And Jason, uh, folks interested in that article was in Harper's Magazine. Is it the current issue? Do we know when that's out? Um, yeah, well, 
It was just recently published, so it's okay. either the current issue or a very recent one. It's called the article is titled "Bright Flight" by Vanessa Gregory. All right, very good. Time for the last break of the hour. We've been talking throughout this hour with our guest, Jason Hoxima, president of the Delta Windbird Organization. We'll be back to wrap things up after this. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with our guest today is Jason Hoxima. He is a biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbird Organization. Um, so we've got another caller on the line. So let's uh, say good morning to Linda calling in from Houston. Go ahead, Linda. You're on the air with us. Yes. Good morning. And I enjoy listening to your program. But I have a quick question. I have lived in the country. I'm 66 years old. I've lived in the country all my life. Last week, I saw like five, maybe four or five birds. They were just in a circle, like a buzz flying around, and they were making noises and like they were playing. And um, they're like a tan-looking color. They didn't, they, they don't fly as high. They wasn't flying as high as uh, a buzz would, but they were a little lower, but low enough that I could see they were tan-looking. And I have no idea what kind of bird they were. They were cute though. Well, you know, this time of year, we're getting into spring migration, and it sounds like those could be migratory hawks. Uh, we get species of hawks like uh, broad-winged hawks and sharp-shinned hawks and cooper's hawks migrating this time of year, and they, they tend to be kind of a brown or tan color, so that could be what you were seeing, especially if there were four or five of them. Uh, they could be a migratory flock. The other thing that's happening this time of year is um, the beginning of nesting season, and so you'll start to see birds chasing each other a bit more, and that can be males chasing females, that can be males chasing other males to defend their territories, or females chasing off uh, species, uh, other birds of other species off of their territories. So, you know, that could have also been related to that kind of the beginning of, of nesting season. It's hard to say, but uh, I'm glad you're enjoying the birds out there. Okay, if they were migratory, does that mean that they might be traveling, or would it be yeah. normally in the area? Yeah, tra so when I when I say that, migratory, that means that it's a species of bird, and this isn't true of all birds. Some, some of your birds are going to be permanent residents. Um, around here, you know, we have Carolina wrens and northern cardinals and blue jays that are here all the time. They don't leave during the winter. They don't leave during the summer. But there are other species that are only here in the winter, or only in the summer, or only traveling in between here, uh, in between their nesting and their wintering grounds. So there's a lot of species of birds that, for example, spend their summer nesting up in the up in Canada or in northern U.S. or the Arctic even, and then in the winter they spend that in the southern U.S. or even in South America, and they have to migrate in between. And so a lot of hawks uh, are like that. And so you could have been seeing some migratory hawks that are just on their way and they would be on their way north right now. So this spring migration is in the, in our part of the world is birds that are on their way north. So watch for that. For sh that that's definitely a possibility. 
All right, Linda, thanks for your call. Uh, Jason, I've got to give you props. We've kind of thrown every sort of thing at you here this morning, and you've done a great job giving us lots of good information about a variety of different kind of birds. Um, At the Skylake Nature Reserve in the Delta, you've got some uh, upcoming events. Would you tell us about those? Yes, absolutely. So if folks would go to deltawindbirds.org and click on the, uh, the events link, You can find information about two events that we have coming up, uh, April 9th and 10th. On the 9th is a a spring paddle, which uh, where we're going to lead a canoe and kayak trip out there uh, where you can visit two different sites. Uh, One site will allow you to paddle in and among the ancient bald cypress trees at Sky Lake, which if you haven't seen them before, uh, it's amazing. And you can paddle right up to them, or you can walk out on the boardwalk there, which is what we'll do on Sunday the 10th. Um, but on the 9th, it, you can bring your own canoe or kayak, or and we may have a couple of spaces left in bar, in rentals that you can borrow for free. Uh, that trip starts at 11 a.m. at Sky Lake Boardwalk, but we, want, uh, we ask that you please register on our website. Uh, and we'll take you also to the open lake itself uh, at the Windbirds Reserve. So... The boardwalk is on uh, state, uh, state-managed land in the WMA there, and that's where the ancient trees are. But then we're also going to have a paddle after that around on the other side of the lake uh, at the Delta Windbirds Nature Reserve where you can see the, the beautiful Sky Lake itself. Um, on Sunday the 10th, we'll, we're having what we call our spring nature tour, and we're, that's going to be focused on birds and plants and uh, other animals like snakes and, and uh, other reptiles and amphibians at three different beautiful sites at Sky Lake, including the boardwalk with the ancient trees, uh, the Sky Lake Nature Reserve uh, that's owned by Delta Windbirds, and then a third site, which is a private property nearby there called uh, Four Winds Refuge that is managed by private landowners that we've been working with. And it's a former catfish farm that is managed for wildlife now. And it's a beautiful place where you can see all kinds of different birds and other uh, interesting species. So that one starts at 9 a.m. at the Sky Lake Boardwalk on April the 10th. So please visit our website and register for one or both of those events. All right, Jason, we've got a minute left. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. Do you have a favorite wind bird? (laughs) You know, I do. And it's it's a godwit. there are four species of godwits. Um, one of them is called the Hudsonian godwit, and they nest in the Arctic, and they make these amazing long journeys to South America to spend the winter in South America that require them to fly for days on end. Four, five, six, seven days they have to fly to get from their breeding grounds in the north all the way to the south in South America, where during these flights they can't stop to, to feed to sleep, to drink water. They just fly about 30 miles an hour constantly, day and night. And it's just an astounding feat of migration. And I'm, I'm just really impressed by them. And I've seen one one time in Mississippi uh, and, and hope to see one again someday. So the godwits are my, my favorite. They're really impressive. There's another one called the bar-tailed godwit that flies nonstop from Alaska to New Zealand uh, every fall. So you can read about that and find videos about it on, the, on YouTube. Very good. That's going to wrap us up for today. Just a reminder, Nature Fest at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science is Saturday, April 2nd from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. 
Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Jason Hoxima and Nicole Smith from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.